Hello everyone, welcome back to Left Page. I am Frank, your always online historian, writer, researcher, podcaster extraordinaire. I hope. <laughs> I'm here today on my own and with a particularly different intro because this is a solo episode and ooh, this this sort of vibe is uh, is what we're going for today. We're going to talk about cyberpunk. And yeah, no, this is this is gonna be fun. Just want to get it out of the way because I've been meaning to do this. And I'll just mention both this intro in particular and what have been our most recent outros, which has been on the show notes, but worth mentioning in the audio as well. Uh, For today, our intro and sort of background music is Oblivion, uh, cyberpunk, uh, protocree music by Carl Casey at White Bat Audio. And our outro for this episode, our most recent episodes and our future episodes most likely, is from Gavin Dune at Miracle of Sound from his album Vistas called Downtime. And it's a very, very good track. So, yeah, what we're going to talk about today is going to talk about Neuromancer from William Gibson, 1984 novel and one of the so-called like original cyberpunk novels and some of what it does it's first things first uh (laughs) i read it in a couple of weeks it's not very long the translation i read from a brazilian sci-fi publisher wasn't very good i just want to mention that so some of the things might be a bit deficient um or a bit tacky but it's because well of I'm not sure how much I've spoken about translation, but I ha- I don't have very strong feelings about keeping informality or keeping slang even during translation, but it needs to be current. And if you're doing that in 2015, it's suitable to have something modern, current, not something that would have been said 20 years ago. Uh, so it was a bad translation. Just, yeah, the slang didn't work. Other of those translations worked better. This one didn't, so... Yeah, uh, that's uh, that's a shame. Anyway, Neuromancer is about well, I have plenty to talk a bit about uh, both the edition itself and shall we say the genre or what is happening here. Uh, there's there's some interesting stuff which is quite telling from the language and even Gibson's own approach. I think he had a sense of what he was doing in a wide way. And in general, it's a, the things I don't like about it, but they've, they're, some of them are more about the addition and smaller aspects, whereas the storytelling and the actual plot seem to work a lot better. So what's Neuromancer about? It's, you know, <laughs> sci-fi future and relationships between digital space and drugs and hacking and yeah it's i mean i will okay so where where am i going to start with this story because it's a story about you know uh now we're the days we're more familiar with the idea of cyberpunk what of a cyberpunk future of these mega corporations just basically owning the entire planet and this background notion of like mob bosses and crime and just these sort of 
unregulated areas and, and just this sort of control. And there's some interesting discussions on AI too. In this case, uh, if stated, but you know, nothing out of the ordinary or unusual to it. But what is what is cyberpunk really? It's both an aesthetic and and the issues with that and understanding it as an aesthetic, and I'll talk about this in a second, but also this imagined future, at times alternate, but usually future, that technological advancement has increased, power and value of digital space is higher, there's the idea that there are things such as flying cars or total digital immersion, a sort of further matrix kind of thing, and the Matrix trilogy took a lot from Neuromancer as it's end up being quite telling this idea of entering this digital space the matrix and you know just pushed further in the matrix trilogy and there's interesting ideas of imagining social political relations the idea of what is this relationship to the digital what is well the class divide (laughs) and class war turning into other directions and uh interesting elements of that here too usually sort of there's sort of a victory in the class war by you know mega corporations and uh, that's about it there's there's nothing beyond in in a sense cyberpunk can be quite dystopian because it is sort of this yeah that's the end point it's just a continuation of this techno techno future domination this technocracy of sorts at times uh, ruled by these megacorps or familiar family clans and that kind of thing. So, what I want to dive into first and foremost, after sort of, you know, doing this brief descriptor of what cyberpunk is or might be, nowadays it is, it's that, but hopefully in other directions, not with Cyberpunk 2077, where it just its aesthetics, its setting. Where does the criticism come from? Where does the critique to these mega corporations, to this state of things, come from? And that is something which is pretty present uh, in Neuromancer. If you know, I I'm always going to wish it to go further, but it's very good and very solid in what it does. But what is one one of the main things about cyberpunk, and that comes up before. A neuromancer. This neuromancer is from 1984, and this comes. This doesn't necessarily come from, but it's already present in Blade Runner that came out in 1982, which is this presence of well, uh, Japanese influence over the United States of neon, the imagery. It's everywhere and in it's present in this book as well and what is that really now you, you find a lot of good twitter threads about it nowadays and i've read a couple and i've read quite a bit about this but this is not just arbitrary this is not just oh what are we, how are we gonna style this oh maybe with this no it is uh <laughs> this is very much present in a sort of historical fear so to speak that the United States would be sort of Japanized. Well, this is marked in a variety of different ways. On this neon aesthetic, on these imageries, 
I mean, a big example that isn't cyberpunk, but that gets thrown out a lot for good reason, is 1988's Die Hard, which, I mean, what what is the name of the building? It's Nakatomi Plaza. Why? Because it's this uh, Japanese encroachment, so to speak. And with this sort of Japanese resurgence after the Second World War and this rising economy, there was this real historical fear that, you know, that the United States was be sort of colonized. And, you know, with this <laughs> happens with a variety of different tropes and stereotypes and issues. And the big thing is that this is not an aesthetic. This, well, this is also an aesthetic, but this is derived from these historical sociopolitical conditions and social fears, so to speak. This is present in a way, uh, regardless of justified or not, but this fear or this social image appears and is recurring again and again. And it's important to understand that because it's not an arbitrary selection. It's not that like, oh, this is cool and this is happening. And when you replicate that, like if you're replicating cyberpunk, you're missing the entire point. And it's important to be critical of this because... Does that make sense today? Or is that an interesting way of imagining a a technocratic future to incorporate these aesthetics? And I'd say it's not. I'd say it's it's an incredibly dated element of the genre, subgenre, or even the aesthetic. But it's there, and it lies in the background. And critically, if you do not engage with it, then it will be just pure aesthetics. Oh, it's a cool thing. Well... Maybe, but it's also derived from real, actual, historical conditions. Regardless of fear, whether justified or not, such a fear was real, in a sense. It existed, and so was this idea that the United States would be Japanized. I mean, we we start the story in Japan, and this the references are there all around, like the, this idea that... It's almost a sort of one thing. I'm also reminded, not as cyberpunk, but the idea is there of Big Hero 6, I believe, uh, where there's this idea of uh, Japanese San Francisco. And somewhat different, but not really. The, the, The essence is still the same, that the United States would be taken over by these Japanese influences. So... And why, well, this is important on its own, just to understand where this comes from. But also, it's important to understand that, well, when you engage and when you present and you publish this sort of thing, when you edit something of this, like, this is from 1984, you're going to publish this, I think my edition is from 2015. How do you present that if you're presenting with, you know, author prefaces and postscriptums and the like? How do you present this text today if you're presenting some sort of critical uh, material or analysis or just a short text? I find it quite relevant that such an important, crucial element of what made cyberpunk what it was and why it's important to be, you know, have a keen eye and be wary of this is just absent from any of the text of the edition. It's mentioned in a postscriptum as a sort of afterthought that it's, oh, this aesthetic as this. I 
really just like an orientalization, which just screams orientalism. Yeah, just no, no, thank you. But it's presented as an aesthetic, and it's not. That's something to be incredibly critical, and you know, uh, I'm insisting on this point because it's it's important. So that's one of the things about cyberpunk. Another one which is incredibly telling for this book in particular, but others I would imagine there's a sort of similarity. In one of the prefaces, there's one by William Gibson. And in it, he mentions that he took a clue from Raymond Chandler, the uh, hard-boiled detective novelist. This sort of whole noir element, the private investigator with his main detective, kind of Philip Marlowe. And he takes the quote from him in a sense of, oh, this, you can't let the reader like sort of sit and simmer with what's going on. You need to keep things moving. You need to keep a brisk, intense space with like action and adventure and danger and chases and just keep a very high pace in order to, the quote is crueler than that, but the sense is kind of that, it's not it. You don't want to let the reader think about what's going on, which can be done cheaply. I don't think it is in this case, or even by Chandler, but you know. But what is incredibly interesting, and in terms of terms as well, because the hackers are defined as cowboys, sort of digital cowboys, and the terminology kind of stuck. There are other, especially video games, which take that cowboy term. I I remember in like quadrilateral, quadrilateral cowboy, think that's the name weird future hacking game interesting fun thing i think (laughs) but this terminology stuck and why is that interesting because first i need to go back a bit where does the hard-boiled detective especially come from it comes a lot of the time from the western the western as a sort of this lone ranger or a strange unnamed hero who is traveling or adventuring perilously where he shouldn't be and he is this sort of hero and he's gonna save the day and he's just in and out and out riding into the sunset he won't enjoy the spoils of his labor of his effort in one and he's this you know this adventurer this great figure like this hero now the hard-boiled detective while incredibly different is quite similar it drinks a lot from it because sure he's a bit more broken he is not as well i mean it varies how clean the western is and you know relatively and objectively speaking in terms of you know uh racism against native americans so you know that that very relative but uh he's a lot more grimy and rough and he's not really a hero although they're heroics but he's still this sort of singular figure though the the one person insisting on going through with this where everyone else is scared or worried and he will see it through to the end no matter what at personal cost at his own life and peril and he will see it through that the 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 descriptions you could be talking about a hard-boiled detective novel or you could be talking about a western hero there's a similarity there and it's so interesting to have gibson talking about raymond chandler 
because it both brings the original, the cowboy idea, but it's also drinking from the hard-boiled. Because our main character, or one of, well, I guess he is, Case, he is this sort of hacker virtuoso who had this sort of, well, he made a crucial mistake and lost everything, but is given another chance to, to do this job in particular and have his skills back. And he is this, he's not like a great guy, uh, but he is trying to understand things as well as he can. He wants to save people, but they're not, no longer able to be saved. And it's, but he wants to use his skills and he needs drugs. And it's, it's a messy story. Um, I mean, I, I think it's messy in general. And I'm counting, uh, I'm discounting a lot on, on the translation, but it's, there's a real sense of a, a continuity there, even with changes, even with breaks, but the Western hero, the hardware detective, the cyberpunk hero, or at least in this case, a neuromancer, or hero in inverted commas, because it's still this, sure, he is incredibly flawed, and he is not there a lot of the time and he's trying to figure it out but he's still kind of like trying his best of trying to navigate and figuring out what he should do and not leaving anyone behind so there are important continuities there of between all these and I do wonder how aware Gibson was of the two because he's expressly taking from Chandler and it's very familiar. It is a sort of hard-boiled detective story in a more sci-fi setting or more dystopian setting and a lot more faster-paced. But it is also... It has these Western references, the cowboys. Interesting, isn't it? I, I, I think if he wasn't fully aware, he had a good sense of what he was doing drinking from this like source from both of them so that is a lot of what the sense was to this book this felt like a weird detective novel mixed with a western mixed with sci-fi dystopian elements and there's definitely a great sense of taking from philip k dick's work um the particular references of like obsolescence and you know garbage and old technology piling up which is reminiscent of the idea that Philip K. Dick brings in Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep of the Kipple, uh, which we talked about in a previous episode uh, last year, I think. Good God. <laughs> so that is also incredibly fun because what we're having there is this, and I think this book does that. It mixes a lot of things. It brings into a lot of it and... I will I will reference this because I find it interesting and very, very fucking problematic. Because I'm talking about this book, but I'm talking about a lot of the elements previous and after. Because the story itself is interesting. And I want to talk a bit about the AI before I go. But the, um, the connections that this book makes and talking about cyberpunk. Because it's interesting to approach these elements, I find, in how do we engage with them and to understand 
elements in questions today, like Cyberpunk 2077 and the fiasco that it pretty much kind of is, in a way, um, beyond, you know, overworking your developers and hyping up and not delivering, you know, those, those kind of things that a large company like CD Projekt Red did. But in terms of understanding what the genre is or even can be, I find it important to, d to do these sort of dives that are, yes, we're talking about this book, but more than that. And I feel that is important. Yeah, I, I think that that can be useful. That can be important as well. So uh, the postscriptum is from a journalist and working in sort of other things in cyberpunk, but not a historian or someone involved with uh, literature necessarily in, in this particular sense. More like social communications. But they're talking about how, uh, how Neuromancer influenced the 80s onwards and how it was this sort of groundbreaking thing and it created a future in a way. And I... I mean, I'm a historian. I have issues with that kind of thing. Uh, especially when you're looking backwards, it's easier to do that kind of thing. But what, I, what I'm what i going to use to talk about, I'm not going to approach that because I think that kind of thing can be a bit nonsense. Like, yes, things are adapted. Yes, the idea of Matrix and yes, certain cultural elements are expanded. But does did Neuromancer really create the future or a particular future or narrow it down? No. Because a lot of the elements are already there, just, you know, explored more. We're talking about megacorps and uh, these huge corporations taking over the planet. Well, you don't, don't need to look to the future to do that. You can, do, you can already look at it in the 80s, especially as neoliberalism intensifies. And you look at it today, well, I mean, sure, the nation state is still a problem with fascism on the rise again. But, uh... I'd argue that corporations have a pretty large amount of power. Look at Amazon and fucking Jeff Bezos. So, great, I'm incensed now. The perfect time to talk about this. So, how does this text start? Collapse of the future in the present, post-humanity, human obsolescence, globalization, decadent and somber megalopolis, pervasive quotidian technology. This is bad. Orientalization of the West? Ugh. Extensive domain of, of mega corporations, spectacle and consumption. Uh, are we talking about the 80s? Uh, electronic surveillance, processes and extensions, informational territory, leather and black vinyl clothes. I mean, you don't need to look that further. I mean, queer king culture was a thing. <laughs> Fusion of synthetic with the organic, do, do, do it yourself, weird choice, biotechnologies, youth subcultures. Again, why we're talking about the future. Hackers, Matrix, street language and slang. I could carry on this list on and on and wouldn't finish the discussion about the conceptual theoretical effects, sociological, anthropological and philosophical that Neuromancer cath catalyzed and constituted from its release in the 80s. Neuromancer is a great book and it talks a lot about this, but it doesn't create this or any of these things it maybe catalyze is the correct word but i don't i hate the phrasing and a lot of what is conceptualized there there's a lot of play with with the 60s there's the sense of like 
the modern Panthers, influenced by the Black Panthers, which few less like the Black Panthers because the Black Panthers were, you know, actively actually political group, and these modern Panthers feel a lot more like the Situationists, which I mentioned briefly a few episodes ago. No, no, in the writer's desk, yes, and yeah, I'm pretty sure, and it is because they're sort of like kind of activist, kind of artistic, kind of conceptual, which starts drinking a lot more on individualism, so it makes sense to happen in the 80s or onwards. It sort of narrowed these down and gathered a lot of these effects, but it did not the conceptual, anthropological, philosophical effects that Neuromancer alone did. Feels a bit much, don't I? Don't you think? I, I certainly find so. And I, I'm and not to take any merit away from the book. When, I'm not talking about the book anymore. That's the interesting part of this. And I think it's easily done when I'm doing it alone to do this type of critique. Or I tend to go towards that direction because it's a lot of what I'm doing with my own work. I'm talking less about the book and more about the analysis and the criticism about it. Because the book does bring a lot of those elements together, and I'm not going to put them in those ways. I'm not going to talk about orientalization of the West. Fuck off. That's nonsense. As a theme, I think. it's Because the implications that he carries are really bad. I'd rather talk about, you know, a fear of Japanization, or a fear of a Japanese uh, rise, or Japanese domination. Because... That strikes to hard a lot more to the issue than this sort of impersonal process. And in this sense, the agency is to the fear, or I'd rather do that, or rather draw attention to the fear than the other elements. Now, I know I've been talking about quite a lot, uh, talking about these things for some time now. So, but I, and I still want to talk about AI, but I want to narrow down this particular point because. Okay, we're talking about information, we're talking about megacorps, talking about spectacle and consumption, digital surveillance, informational territory, biotechnology. Street language and slang is a very weird thing to mention. Collapse of the future and the present. These things aren't new. These things were present then and there. These things were... Sure, they were sort of coalesced in this and brought together here. But I object to the way that this is sort of like, oh, the consequences that this book had because of doing all this. Sure, it brought a lot of these things together, but it did not invent any of this. Literature and, you know, reading it, you see a lot of these elements of like the super rich, well, basically living in space and building their own sort of special adjacent uh, high class modules like its own separate module just for this particular corporate familial clan (laughs) Uh, you have this sort of adjacent kind of slum area sort of this poorer neighborhood setting thing creating i mean i sort of creating its own favelas in the like that 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 image is familiar to me unfortunately and these mega corporations and this idea of like this dominated technological future, and yeah, these things are new. It is interesting how certain objects, certain cultural elements are sort of made into idols in this regard, as like, 
oh, these are the ones that coalesce everything or these coalesce these influences. And I would put it, at least in this book, in terms of, yes, it coalesced what cyberpunk was and was could be. And a lot of what cyberpunk happened afterwards took from William Gibson, took from Neuromancer, and for good reason. But to say that it is explicitly influenced the future or culture or sure in some ways but there's the relationship between the present and past and fiction i, I mean i'm talking about this in the writer's desk you're influenced by your present in ways that you're aware or not and you're you can try to be as self-aware as you can when you're engaging with it and i think gibson was that's where the point and that's where the critique comes from because at no point are we shown that like oh this I mean, there's the sense of a, a dystopian reality that this is all there is. But even then, there's there's the lack of a sense of like a sort of wallowing. There is a sense of like carrying, in, carrying on, which feels very familiar from the hardwired detective. It's like, it's an incredibly difficult, bizarre, traumatic experience. And he carries on no longer into the sunset, but back into the dingy office to be there waiting for the next case or in this case waiting for the next adventure and that feels familiar and well explored what i want to mention before i go i think i feel this was a sort of heavy high octane episode because i've got a lot of energy recording this in the morning too so there's no natural progression downwards it's all up and up and up um which kind of suits the background music i think too <laughs> I hope. But what I want to mention before I go is talk a bit about AI, which I would say the exploration feels dated, or I am in a different point in consideration of AI, or thinking about that ethically, politically, or whatever, or even philosophically. But because in here, they are sort of this danger. There are very few of them, and they're, they're kept under very tight knit control by the Turing police, which registers and sort of keeps them in check in order to execute them at a moment's notice, which, well, not to spoil anything, but you don't need to imagine too much what can happen. But there's this sort of sense of danger from dealing with artificial intelligence and this new weird thing that could threaten everything, which, you know, happens again in Terminator and other stuff. Or even the Matrix, as I mentioned earlier. But I am in... I don't know. I think maybe I'm in a different place in this reflection. Because for me, I'm like... Um, I don't have a lot of the hesitation that the characters seem to have with it. Like, sure, it's a danger or whatever. But like... Yeah. <laughs> Given everything and the technological and political, economical control by these mega corporations. How bad can a loose AI get in comparison, you know? <laughs> I mean, if it's in the best interest of the megacorps to, to keep them under control, I say, eh, why, why keep them under control then? Let's fuck it up. Which may be an acceler accelerationist point, but I'm talking about fiction, so I'm not too worried. <laughs> but it's interesting how to engage with that ethically and philosophically, because I've also been watching a lot of Star Trek, 
So data and that discussion of sentience and conscience and free will and possibility is in my mind a lot and how, okay, if these things exist or they've created them and they are learning or adapting, it's like, what sort of agency or control or ownership do we have of them? And I'd have to argue to say that we wouldn't really because if they are uh, an intelligent, sentient, conscious being, then they have every right as humans do or should do, should have. <laughs> and I find this presence a lot more in how I engage with it philosophically. That isn't really here. It's a lot more like dangers, the the fear, what can it do to us? And which is it? Well, it varies in Terminator, but it's also not really there. And it's present in a lot of sort of my hopeful or different engagement with it. And it was interesting to contrast those views while reading the book because I had a very different sense of like, yeah, no, just go on. Like, sure, they're dangerous and they have a <laughs> their own agenda because, you know, people and life and intelligence does. But, I mean, what is the risk? Like... That, that was something that I found very fascinating when reading it. That's like the fear of AI didn't really hit me as much. And maybe it's because I'm in a different place. But I do wonder how much that particular essence of the discussion is dated. Or, or, and nowadays when we think about these things. Because especially from a critical political angle, AI is not neutral. It is or any sort of programming or data checking thing. Because, you know, there's the human touch creating that. And that has its own biases and prejudices and discrimination and all that. So that's why, you know, you have uh, <laughs> programming and kind of thing that is explicitly racist. Because they are set into these certain terms which, you know, make them racist. <laughs> yes, there, there's a, a man behind the machine. Usually. Usually a white man. Hmm. So... One must wonder how to engage with this particular discussion today, too. And I am still thinking about that because because it's a fun one. What can I say? Like, I do enjoy thinking about that. But in order to try and wrap this episode up, which was longer for a solo episode, but I think the background music helps. <laughs> I, I sort of want to leave it with, in order to engage with literature in general, but especially with cyberpunk, it's important to be aware of what and how we're engaging with it, especially when it's something that became very widespread, like cyberpunk, into a variety of mediums and a variety of different literature. Because it has a sort of, even if it doesn't have like a fixed origin point, it has, oh, I'm reading postmodern theory, so this is why it's going to show up. There's a genealogy there, which is important to understand on how these things transform because yes at one point it was deeply influenced by this fear of this Japanese presence or this domination that the United States would lose its dominant superpower status and that that fear changed and diminished at the 90s and the 2000s as that became clearer and clearer that no that wasn't going to happen the US is still king but the images brought about from that fear, culturally speaking, remained. 
So you can take cyberpunk as an aesthetic without considering that, but you're losing a lot and you're missing a lot. And that's why it's important to do that. If you create a sort of like sci-fi thing, uh, cyberpunk thing nowadays, and you want to do this sort of futuristic aesthetic and mix elements from like national background to it and, and bring these things together, if you just add these things as like, oh, the, the neon, these Japanese characters, you're missing the point. You're, you're very much doing a poor job at it of understanding how this was done and how to do this. It's, it's not about an aesthetic. And I think this is definitely one of the things I want to hammer home. But also these considerations of how do we engage with a particular literary or cultural work and understanding its influences, so to speak. It's a very problematic word, really, uh, if you want to dig deep. But, and of course, there's, there's a lot of it, especially with a work like this that was very popular, that was awarded, that, you know, there are two sequels, which I didn't read yet, and the popularity of what Cyberpunk became. But it's important to dial back and was like, okay, so understanding particular works like this one or others historically how do these things engage and you know were brought to the forefront and became recurrent as this idea of a world fully dominated by mega corporations or this digital reality that is in a sense superior or so influential on real life or this idea of surveillance or you know ecological decline and collapse and and so on, and so on. It's, it's difficult work, but it's important to do in order to engage with it. And when you're talking about influences, that can become, that needs to be carefully done in order for you not to do things like, oh, this created the future. Not really. Not really at all. And, you want, and if you want to talk about pr prosthetics for, as a random example, Prosthetics are not a new technology. They've been adapted, but they're very old. There are, you know, like... And sure, they're more simplistic, but, you know, there are sort of, like, mechanical prosthetics and, and things that are fairly dated from, like, the industrial age or even before that, if you want to get simpler. Not a new thing, just, you know, more adapted and whatever. Maybe even body modding, I guess, is to a sense or to a degree. So, you know, this... Historical analysis and historical care are really important when looking at literature and looking at the relationship that literature can have with the, with the real world. Because it's, and that's the point of what I'm doing. Like, you dive in, you engage with these elements, and when you dive out, you're also engaging with a particular time and seeing those elements play out. You're not... Neuromancer isn't creating the future. It's engaging with its own present by creating a future where those things are just turned up to 11. That's usually dystopious. Pretty much most of the time. It's turning these elements. So, yes. Historical analysis and literary analysis are things that can work together in such a beautiful way. And, you know, looking at it from a journalistic or social communications sense just distance like this can lead to stuff that says like oh this is creating the future or this created certain elements of the future tone it down please for the benefit of everyone so yeah um this was 
longer than I expected, but I think it was a good episode with a lot of important discussions on how do we engage with cyberpunk, technology, literature, and history. So I hope this was a good episode all around. You can find me <laughs> at LeftSpeechBot and at Frank Gothic on Twitter and on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash leftpage, where I have the reading corners and the writer's desk uh, up to date. Yes, both are working. And I have some interesting stuff for the reading corner this next month because I'm reading a lot of different interesting stuff. I was mentioning I was reading postmodern stuff, wasn't I? Yes, that's going to show up, which I hope it'll be fun. I mean, it's, I'm enjoying it. So yeah, thank you so much for listening, everyone. This Doing these solo episodes is equal parts harder and easier because in a sense, sure, I, I can stop when I have the time to do them, but it's also a lot more difficult to organize, to do, to to plan, I guess. It's weird. Uh, but I do have a lot of fun. And today, even kind of chaotic, it was still good. Yeah, so thank you so much for listening, everyone. I hope you have a great week. And we'll be back soon in September now. Good God. I need to plan stuff out. It's going to be fun and it's going to be good, though. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I hope you have a good time. Hope you have a great weekend. And I'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much for listening. And to the next one.